and child development. And then this morning, we'll look into adolescent development, and we'll continue on into the adult stage of life and some considerations about end-of-life um, care. Again, all of this as pertinent to physicians, healthcare professionals. So we spent a lot of time in the early infant development and child development thinking about milestones and how it's important for physicians to be aware of milestones to track progress and to be able to um, find, pro if there are problems, to be able to act and refer children to necessary services if needed early on. But as you move into adolescence, we think less about milestones and more about general trends. So in this objective, you see, rather than the word milestone, it's trends, because there's a lot more variability. And whereas you're looking for milestones in a matter of months, um, when, it when we're talking about adolescence and adulthood, we're talking about general trends, and there's a lot of individual variability in the achievement of those trends. And miles so milestones would, would be more appropriate for childhood. So what are some of these developmental trends in adolescence? The most obvious, of course, is puberty. So usually adolescence starts with a lot of turmoil, a lot of changes associated with puberty. Of course, not tumultuous for all. Only actually about a third of adolescents will experience a lot of um, severe tumultuous changes. But most adolescents will have some changes in their body. All, actually, all uh, puberty will always involve changes in the body, what we call the second critical period in sexual differentiation. The first critical period we'll cover in the sex and brain lecture, but the second critical period is where you see a lot of the secondary sex characteristics develop. For example, in female, you have uh, deposits of fatty adipose tissue in the breasts. You have changing of the body in uh, development of pubic hair, facial hair in men, uh, the voice changes. So that can be met in some adolescents with a degree of um, surprise, and for some adolescents, um, horror at the rate at which their body's changing. So for physicians, it's important to be aware of this and to be able to de develop an independent relationship with patients. So up until this time, you really are talking to the parents. In adolescents, you start talking to the, the individual patient themselves, and you start having a relationship with the patient outside of the parents. And so you start having private conversations. And it's important for you to be aware of these developmental trends so that you can ask. Because teenagers won't always tell you what's going on, but they want to know. And they won't always get the information from their parents. So you want to establish from a very young age an open, communicative relationship with your adolescent patients. And if they have questions, for example, in some males who might have some breast development early on, they'll be too embarrassed to talk to anyone about it, but a physician can tell them that's actually quite normal and will resolve typically by the end of the pubertal stage. So it's important to be aware and be willing to talk to your patients about this, especially if they feel a sense of shame or humiliation. For example, some of the changes can be somewhat embarrassing. Some of you may remember but what I woke like. up every day. that brought back any bad memories for some of you, I apologize, but it can be quite, quite horrifying to some teenagers to, 
experience these changes. Now, it's, and I said in the last lecture, adolescence is really a time where everything's out of proportion. The teeth are too big, the body parts get big in some areas and not in others, and, and it's also in terms of brain development. Some systems are developing and others aren't, so we don't, the prefrontal lobes come online a little bit later, so we don't always have the sense of control over our own behavior, and this lack of proportion can be very disconcerting for teenagers, and they can feel like everything's changing too fast. And in time, that will resolve. When they get into early adulthood, they start to feel that, I mean, a sense of control. But when all these systems are out of whack, their vocal cords, they're no longer able to control the way they once were. If children are dancers or athletes, they may have had a nice level of control over their bodies, and as their proportions change, that also changes. So it's really a, a difficult time as everything is kind of coming into proportions um, at different rates. So the growth spurt um, happens, again, there's a lot of individual variability in that. And um, adolescents, by the time they reach the end of their growth spurt, will have achieved the final 25% of their adult height and the final 50% of their adult weight. So that's a big change. Um, and it also happens differently for males and females. So this picture of um, my friends at our 13th year, so this is one of my friend's 13th birthday, you can see the girls in the back about a foot taller than the 13-year-old boys in the front. Um, and that's quite normal. So girls will typically have their growth spurts anywhere from 9 to 13, whereas boys may come, um, have their growth spurts a little bit later, from 12 up until 15. And so there's this period of time where there's really a discrepancy. So this is 13, and then this is 15. You see, most of us have kind of achieved our height, but one of my friends is still lagging behind of it. He eventually caught up. But when there are these differences in growth spurts, that can bring a set of issues that a physician may want to talk to their patients about because, let's say, for early development in females, that might um, result in some issues with their body image and self-esteem. They might start to hang out with older girls who may look or may be more developed like them and might start to engage in early sexual activity or they could start to engage in some food restriction to try to keep their body from developing. So you might see the onset of eating disorders at this age. So physicians should just be aware that sometimes when children or adolescents don't develop on par with their peers around the same time, it can bring some problems. For males, it can also result in some lower self-esteem if they're not developing as quickly as their other male peers. You see the variability here. Um, these guys in the back are taller than, much taller, within the same age range as um, these guys here in the front. So another big change that happens in adolescence are in the sleep rhythms. So uh, We'll talk a lot about circadian rhythms, sleep rhythms, um, when we get to that segment of the complex brain functions. But for now, it's important to be aware in adolescence, there is a phase delay. So teenagers will start to go to sleep later. Their circadian rhythm will start to be a bit more delayed. So whereas in childhood, they might get tired around 8 or 9 o'clock, in adolescence, they start getting tired around 10 o'clock. And they also need more sleep. At most adolescents will need about nine hours, 10 hours of sleep. And the other problem is they start to then stay up later to talk to their friends on the phone. And so they might even keep their phone in the bed with them. So they might not be getting as healthy, deep sleep. They, their body is already reducing the amount of slow wave sleep they're getting. 
So there's a lot working against teenagers in terms of getting adequate sleep. And that has resulted in some schools changing their policy where they actually start school later to accommodate this sleep phase delay in teenagers. You probably remember being tired all the time in high school and um, just barely being able to keep your eyes open on the bus or in some classes. And maybe some of you are still in this period um, because it can go into the 20s, this, this phase delay. But by the end of the 20s, um, if you practice good sleep hygiene and good sleep habits, which we'll talk about in the sleep lecture, you can phase shift a bit earlier again in adulthood, go back to having um, a more a certain cadian rhythm that's um, more in line with the Earth's rhythms. So um, we also see in adolescence this ongoing brain maturation. We talked a lot about this in the um, previous lectures on infancy and childhood. There's a, a lot of brain development that's still happening in adolescence. So we see ongoing myelination and dendritic pruning. So um, a lot of the cortical thinning or reduced volume that we see in adolescence is due to this pruning of um, extra dendrites, essentially. Most dramatic changes occur in the prefrontal cortex. So here we see still a linear increase in white matter. And we see that peak, the same slide from the last lecture, just a little more zoomed in on the frontal lobe. We see this peak where frontal lobe gray matter is peaking around 12 and then starting to now, when I say decrease, again, I want to emphasize that that's not, I mean, more is not always better. So when we talk about dendritic pruning, synoptic pruning, that's essentially associated with improved function. And that's kind of a hard shift to make because in childhood, increased cells and thickening and increased gray matter is associated with increases in cognitive function. But now, after this peak, we see a decrease in gray matter volume, and that's still associated with improvements in cognitive function. But the prefrontal lobes are experienced the greatest degree of change in adolescence, and that's associated with a lot of the cognitive development that we see. So for teenagers, they are much better at using abstract thought. We talked about that with the Piaget stages. They're capable of devising hypotheses, considering multiple theories, um, hypothetical, so, so imagining a scenario that isn't really happening but could happen. Um, also thinking about counterfactual logic. So I gave you an example um, of counterfactual logic when I uh, said when you hit a glass with a feather, it will break. I'm going to hit the glass with a feather. If you ask an eight-year-old what will happen to the glass, he'll say nothing because a feather won't break glass but a 16-year-old will understand that you've created a kind of counterfactual logic problem, and they'll know the, the rule is, well, I guess the glass will break, because they understand it's just a hypothetical logic problem. And that, in Piaget terms, is called the formal operational stage. So it's common, though, in, in adolescence to see some regression to earlier stages of concrete thinking, um, and especially under stress. So there's enough research now to be, um, to confirm that under stress, we experience some reduction in our prefrontal lobe functioning. So a lot of things we'll talk about that the prefrontal lobes are doing in adolescence under stress, those functions can be somewhat compromised. 
So this can mean a regression to more concrete types of thinking. So the frontal lobes are also helping adolescents learn to solve complex problems, to plan ahead. So now we see teenagers can plan pep rallies. They can um, organize big functions. They can multitask. They are taking care of their own homework at this point. They are setting their time schedule to get things done. Um, a teenager with especially developed prefrontal lobes might even set an app on their phone to turn off all their social media while they study, and then it comes back on at a certain time. Right? So these are lots of, um, it takes some, some planning and multitasking organizational skills to be able for most teenagers to handle the complex demands of, of school, at least you know, in, in many countries in the, in the West and the US, they, it's, it's become very demanding in terms of um, the homework levels. So for a teenager, it's essential that they develop these organizing and multitasking skills. They also develop the ability to inhibit their, um, maybe their, you could call their impulsive um, tendencies. So a famous task that was developed and tested in children and adolescents is you ask them, okay, you can have um, this marshmallow now or you can have two marshmallows in 10 minutes. And then you sit them in the room alone with the marshmallow and some children will be able to wait 10 minutes and get two, but some will just have to eat it right away. And so it's kind of a measure of impulse or delayed gratification. And there's lots of individual differences in that, but typically by adolescence, teenagers understand that if I wait, I can get a bigger reward. Um, but that's not always reliable. There's individual differences, and there's also this period in adolescence where they tend to become a little bit more impulsive and risk-taking, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the lecture, or later, later in the lecture. But this is just to give you an example of the type of task that's used to measure this um, inhibitory control function of the prefrontal lobe um, in adolescents and also in adults. It's called the Stroop task. So some of you may have seen this. You just read down the line, the words out loud, and if you do it to yourself, you can see how quick and how easy it is for you to read these words, right? Red, blue, red, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, red, blue. It's pretty quick. But the next task is for you to name the color of the ink that these X's are printed in. So to go down the column and read the color of the ink out loud. So it's Still pretty, still pretty easy, but not as easy as reading the word. Okay, so it takes a little bit longer to name the color of the ink. But now for the next one, I want you to name the color that the word is printed in, but not read the word. Okay, to see how quickly you can go down the column and name the color of the ink, but not read the word. Okay, so it's a little bit harder because reading is automatic. Reading is an automatic, prepotent program. It just happens without our awareness. In order not to read something, you have to actively inhibit reading. So it requires frontal lobes to actively inhibit an automatic program, something you're just prone to do without thinking. And so with 
prefrontal lobe control, you become better and quicker at that, inhibiting something that's easier, that's more automatic, to do something that's more effortful. So this is the Stroop task, and it's taught in many, or it's shown in many different cognitive science class, and it's used in neuropsychological testing as a measure of inhibitory control, which depends on sufficient prefrontal lobe development. So this is to be used as an example of how adolescents become better and better at inhibiting maladaptive behaviors, let's say, um, in order to serve a long-term goal. So they may become better at inhibiting this tendency to want to just run out and go play with their friends in order to do their homework. Or if they have goals, they want to be an athlete, they want to be a gymnast, to spend time at the, at the gym rather than going and playing or watching TV or playing video games. Right? So they establish a sense of discipline to work towards their goals and inhibit things that might come easier but not be in service to their long-term goals. So in general, adolescents are, are motivated by reward. They're reward-seeking. They want to please their friends. They want to fit in. They want to be popular. Peer approval is really important. Um, and the sensation-seeking quality and novelty-seeking. So and you might remember in adolescence, you might still be somewhat in this where you just want new experiences. You want to explore. You want to go out and try new things. And that diminishes a little bit um, across the lifespan. Not for everyone. We have some faculty um, that are in the room that still do crazy things like learn how to fly later in life. <laughs> but for most of us, we get a little less novelty-seeking and we, we tend to, to stick to kind of what we know. But in adolescence, you're still exploring the world and you want to find out what's out there. So there's a lot of kind of trying new things, taking risks, um, and that's probably, there's some evolutionary value to that. But as we'll get to when we see the health consequences of adolescence, it can also lead to a lot of injuries and unfortunately, um, death. So the emotional system matures earlier than the prefrontal control system. So what do I mean by that? The emotional system in terms of the amygdala, the nucleus accumbens and its role in reward processing, the amygdala and its role in fear processing, but also heightened emotion and physiological arousal, that all of that is well developed in adolescence, but the prefrontal control system is still developing. And you have these surge of hormones. So what happens is you have a lot of emotional instability. Again, things are out of proportion, where your emotions are big and large, and your prefrontal control over those has not quite developed yet. So if you think about it, like when I talked about the palmer grasp and cortical inhibition of the palmer grasp, that eventually you can go from this right to this a much more nuanced fine motor control. If you think prefrontal lobe control over the emotion system, it's like emotions can swing from very high valence, positive valence, to negative valence, but yet over time with prefrontal control, there's more nuanced modulation of those emotional experiences and swings that you may have recall from middle school when everything is so bad, it's all bad, and then by the time you get to um, college, you know, you, some bad, some good, and the emotional swings are not as great in terms of normal healthy development. So some of that has to do with specific pathways. For example, the uncinate fasciculus is one important white matter pathway that is involved in prefrontal control over the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens. And I just wanted to point out this 
intense myelination of the uncinate fasciculus up until the 20s, right? So there's a lot of ongoing maturation of these prefrontal to subcortical pathways supporting increased emotional control in adolescence. So what are some of the big issues? Um, as a physician, you, I already mentioned, you're starting to establish an independent relationship with your patient outside of their parents. Um, and they're doing that across multiple facets of their life. They're trying to distance themselves from their parents to some degree and set up more relationships with their peers. They look to their peers for comfort rather than their parents. And this is uneven. Sometimes they will go to their parents for support, but that becomes less and less throughout adolescence. There's this uh, tendency then for adolescents to shut the door rather than leave it open, their bedroom door, so they want more privacy, whereas they may have run to their parents when they were kids and said, look at my story, read what I wrote. In adolescence, they might be writing in their diary with do not read on the cover. So it's a real shift from being very open and wanting their parents to know everything about them and praise them to wanting to keep some things to themselves and, um, and maybe share with their peers. They also start to, to go into this phase where they are, will idealize some artists, musicians, athletes, and they'll be the coolest one. And, and if you don't like you know, this artist, then you are you know, so stupid. You don't understand. This is the best. And anyone who doesn't like devote themselves to that artist and stay and wait in line for three or four hours to get tickets to the concert is a wannabe, and they're not the hardcore devotee to that artist. You see that, right? And, um, so it's, everything is kind of extreme, and they might devalue then other groups or other, oh, that you know, type of music sucks the worst, you know, and these people that like that, you know, who wants to be friends with them? So there's the in-group and the out-group, and this can be pretty um, dis uh, ad disproportionate in terms of they, they, the adolescents might do this to an extreme. We still see that in adulthood, um, but hopefully adults become, can grow out of that a little bit. And um, this in-group, out-group thing is much more pronounced in adolescence. They also have a tendency to seek freedom and not want to be controlled anymore by their parents. Um, none of this is news to you. It's not that, for many of you, it's not that um, long ago you remember, you experienced this. And also this desire for intimate relationships, to be close to another human being, to partner up with people. Um, to have a style, to have a style that's consistent with their idols, their role models, to play with clothes, play with dress as a symbol of who they are and who they want to be, because that's a big important question that adolescents are asking themselves, is who am I? Who am I physically? What is my body? Um, how, how, how do I stand? How do I walk? Um, sexually, am I someone who is just going to you know, wait until marriage, or am I someone who really wants to explore and put myself out there? Am I someone socially who has lots of friends, or do I tend to, to want to have one or two close friends? Or what do I want to be? Do I, do I want to devote myself already at a young age to some pursuit in life um, academically or you know, in terms of sports? Or do I just want to kind of be open and see what happens? Maybe I'll figure it out in college. Maybe I'll figure it out afterwards. That all of that's happening. They're trying to decide who they are. And we already talked about changes in sleep patterns. So I just wanted you to think about what are, what's one of the reasons that adolescents are able to do this, to kind of try on these different identities.
Okay, so adolescents, they're, they're pretty good about trying on different identities because they can think hypothetically. They can wake up and they say, this week I want to I wanna try to be punk rock. I want to see how it feels to just be a rebel, you know, and not show up for every class. Maybe I'll, I'll skip out. Maybe I'll dress a little more punk rock. I'll try that out for a while um, until their grades go down and they freak out and they go back to being a good girl or a good boy, you know, like they want to get back in line. So they'll try things for a while, see how it feels, and if it doesn't quite fit, they might disregard. So it's this process of figuring out who they are, and they do that because they can think hypothetically. So yes, the answer didn't come up there, but that was hypothetically, that was correct. So what are some special challenges based off of all these developmental trends? Um, one, the number one special challenge to health that physicians should be aware of, at least in the U.S., are, is obesity and being overweight. The children aren't exercising as much, their diets aren't as healthy, they're playing video games and spending a lot of time on social media, maybe not out as, um, doing sports or playing outside with their friends as much as they used to, and so obesity is an issue. Um, you can think about that in terms of percentiles, with overweight being 85th to 95th percentile and obesity being uh, 95th percentile or greater, or the BMI, with 25 to 29 being overweight and 30 plus being obese. And if we look at some of the data that was collected from the National Youth Risk Behavior Survey. For those of you who are um, data freaks, you love data, you can actually download this data and analyze anything you want from, from it's, a, it's publicly available data set. So they um, did this in 2013, 2015, they poll US teens. And what they found out is that about 16% are overweight. And there was um, a difference, a significant difference in terms of minority groups having more overweight issues than Caucasian. And in terms of obesity, there was a significant effect of still about um, 16, 10 to 16%, but with males having, or a greater percentage of males having obesity problems compared to females. So for the physician, this is relevant because it's important for you to have a set of recommendations to provide, to have a conversation with teens about how important it is for them to exercise and to encourage them in terms of the long-term consequences for their health if they're, if they're not exercising. Early sexual activity is a, a special challenge that physicians should be aware of. About half of high school students are sexually active. Um, of course, STDs are a big concern, and pregnancy. The U.S. has high rates of pregnancy, although that is declining. Um, the lowest rates are in Japan, only 4 in 1,000, where that's 26.6 um, per 1,000 in the U.S. And in general, that's much higher than Europe with about 10 per 1,000 in Denmark and Sweden and a lot of European nations. So the U.S. still has an issue in terms of um, pregnancy in, teen, in adolescence. But that is going down. So at least the percentage of high school students who have ever had sexual intercourse in 1991 was about 54%, but now in 2015 is about 41%. So there's a lot of theories about why that's decreasing. Some people think it's because children, um, adolescents, spend more time in their room on social media now and less time out. Um, <laughs> someone has to share with me. Is that because, say it. That's, but that's, so, so is it because they also are engaged in sexual activities on social media? Yeah, well, 
So we'll, we'll talk a little bit. So there, there's pros and cons to that, right? So they may be engaging less in actual sexual activity or physical sexual activity, but and they might be taking less risks in terms of to their own body by just being online and doing things virtually with video games. But um, we'll talk about some of the cons of that. Someone will have to tell me later. It's hard. To, it's hard to catch the joke when you're up here. Um, okay, so. About 12% of teenagers will have four or more sexual partners, and that's a, a big risk factor for HPV. So at this point, HPV has become, um, since 2006, the vaccines have been developed, and so it's become a regular part of the healthcare conversation with teenagers. Um, since 2006, all women have been um, encouraged to get vaccinated, and since 2011, men as well. But um, for the most part, it's such a high prevalence um, that it's, the, the effects of the vaccine are still ongoing. It's not clear in 10 years what things will look like, but HPV is a major concern. It can lead to um, genital and anal warts as well as cervical cancer. So um, this is one of the big things now that are happening in terms of healthcare with teenagers. Um, the percentage of high school students who use a condom is 61%, um, but for a physician, the, for males, the, the, the thing to pay attention to is there's still 40% who aren't. And so the, you, can't, you can't be sure that parents are talking to teenagers about safe sex, so it's important for the physician to initiate these conversations as well. So mental health. In terms of um, rates of depression and anxiety, um, they, they're also a big issue, at least. So in this case, we start to see a big difference between males and females, with females reporting much higher Depressive, depressive symptoms. In this case, um, the percentage of high school students who felt sad or hopeless almost every day for two or more weeks in a row so that they stopped doing some usual activities during the 12 months before the survey. Okay, so that was how the question was asked, and that's a pretty high rate. So we already see sex differences in terms of rates of depression in high school students. And just recently, oh, you can see here, there's, al there's also some discrepancy, some difference between minorities, whereas um, Hispanics will report much higher levels of depression than Caucasians and African-Americans. So this recently, this article came out and it was being circulated, um, I know amongst most of my peers, it's why, what's going on with anxiety and why are teenagers, and at least in America, experiencing such high levels of anxiety. And a lot of people attribute this to social media use and that there's such compar social comparisons and need for instant feedback and appraisal of their own body, their own worth, um, and not spending enough time getting actual physical contact with friends and peers, but it's still unclear. Also, the demands of high school in terms of academic demands um, are really high. And so um, some people argue that this is leading to higher rates of anxiety in adolescents. So in general, tobacco and alcohol use have been on the decline since 1999 to 2013, whereas marijuana has been increased, and maybe some part of that is um, less stigma associated with marijuana in the general culture. Interestingly, among other drugs, prescription drugs have the highest rate, and so this actually with no prescription. So what are we talking about here? Stimulants mostly. Um, for concentration and focus, which goes along with the idea that there's a lot of pressure for adolescents to succeed at a high level, and so there's a lot of use of 
stimulants to, to be able to keep up with the demands. And um, it's another special challenge to health for physicians to be aware of is, is this use of um, non-prescribed drugs and um, potentially addiction and um, adolescents using those through college and, and potentially medical school as well without being followed regularly by a physician. So um, another big special challenge to health is risk-taking, the sense of invulnerability in adolescents. Um, they think, it's not going to happen to me. Um, they feel uh, that, that they can go and try new things without, without stopping themselves and considering taking safety precautions. Um, weapon use is another issue in adolescents. About 8% of females and 24% of males carried weapons in the past 30 days, according to the same survey. And we see here that, okay, much higher in males, that's no surprise, but interestingly, higher rates of weapons, in this case, a gun, a knife, or a club on at least one day during the 30 days before the survey, higher rates in Caucasians than in Hispanics or African Americans. And also, um, violence is another special risk or special challenge to health. And as again, as adolescents are so influenced by their peer group, they want to fit in and they might be encouraged to um, engage in violence, whereas left to their own devices, um, it's, it's basically this phenomenon of being egged on by the social group to commit violent acts. And also um, concerns about using um, video games, violent video games, and the media. So what are some of the leading causes of death? Um, unintentional injuries are the number one cause of death in adolescents, um, suicide and homicide. So all three of these top three causes of death can be linked to, again, this emotional instability that occurs in adolescence um, in the sense that you have more um, a tendency to be sensation-seeking, reward-seeking, with less prefrontal control over behavior. You might ask, why are suicides so much higher in males if there are higher rates of depression in females? And there's lots of theories of that. Um, some people or some research has shown that females use things like poisoning or overdosing, whereas males tend to use hanging and firearms. So males use um, forms of or methods for suicide that are essentially more effective and females um, than, than the ones that females choose. And there's, it's not clear why females choose overdosing or, or poison. Um, it's, some people argue it's this idea they don't want to disfigure their bodies. Like, so for example, when female adolescents shoot themselves, um, they rarely do it in the head. So it's interesting data like that, but it's not clear why, but in general, although females experience higher rates of depression, males are more prone, three times as likely to commit suicide and four times as likely to commit homicide. Um, and globally, so the World Health Organization, injury, road injury is the number one, HIV number two, suicide is number three, and then lower respiratory infections and interpersonal violence are four and five. So just to spend a little bit more time thinking about this phenomenon of risk-taking in the adolescent brain, um, I want you to ponder this scenario.
Okay, so here we have an adolescent boy who wasn't wearing a helmet. He told his dad he would. What issue do you think contributes? Need for freedom, right? He just wants to go out. He just wants to experience the world. He wants to, that sensation-seeking, um, to have the experience. And the helmet is kind of holding him back, right? And so this, you can, this leads to high rates of accidents and bad decision-making in, in adolescence, taking unnecessary risks. So um, in general, let's just think about this question, driving without a helmet. It's also a big issue in here in Grenada and at the university. Some of the pros, it's more exciting, right? Don't want to get ridiculed by my friends. Got to wear the helmet, man. You know, my hair's not going to get messed up if I wear a helmet. Have to carry around all day, right? So not wearing a helmet solves all that. Some of the cons, of course, getting in an accident, becoming physically injured, potentially brain injured or dead, um, which would be uh, a waste of fantastic resources that you have you're carrying around in your in your brain. So. Pros would be hot reasoning, right? That's the, the idea that hot reasoning is like, I do things because it will feel good, because I want the sensation, I want the freedom. And cold reasoning is like, well, but I could get hurt, and it's not really a good idea in terms of the, my long-range plans. But in adolescence, we see this discrepancy, whereas cold reasoning is depending upon this type of, kind of linear uh, prefrontal lobe development. And hot reasoning depends on maturation of the limbic system. So if the limbic system, the amygdala, the nucleus accumbens is developing and maturing faster, right, in, in terms of this U-shaped curve, so we see that risk-taking is higher in adolescence and in childhood and in adulthood. And the way we can understand that is this discrepancy. So they, take, they basically are more reward-seeking, they're more sensation-seeking, they have more independence than children. So they go out and take risks but yet that prefrontal lobe control has not developed yet. So there's this period of time where they're more vulnerable, and then we see more unintentional injuries in adolescence. And of course, decision-making worsens in high emotion context. So, you know, you got your friends out, dirt bike path, you know, and it's all your friends are going, you know, go, 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 go. End up taking more risks, and I guess, again, being egged on by this need to socially fit in. So finally, we're going to go through Erickson stages of psychosocial development. So Erickson was a um, psychotherapist. He followed after Freud, but developed his own model of how um, people progress through the lifespan and the important conflicts that they have to resolve in order to mature, to go on to the next life stage. So um, he believed that each stage builds on the previous one and that if we resolve the crisis of each stage, then we mature, we become, we self-actualize, um, and if we continue to mature through the lifespan, we have um, an, as an, an old age, integrity, and a sense of, of well-being. So each lower stage acquires a new meaning. So we, there's a richness we get, there's some, um, each, we learn from each stage and based on how we resolve the conflict of that stage. In adolescence, the major conflict is identity versus role confusion. But we're going to go through each of the stages and thinking back to some of the stuff we talked about in last lecture, too, in terms of early development. From birth to one, in Erickson's model, the basic conflict is between do I trust the world or do I mistrust? The question they ask is, will the world take care of me? 
And this really depends on the caregiver's interactions, right? If the caregiver is trustworthy, then the child will develop the sense that the, the people in the world, an internal schema, a working model of relationships that people can be trusted. If the caregiver is kind of, um, let's say there's an alcohol problem, and sometimes they're drunk and they are um, angry and volatile and they're not meeting that child's needs, maybe they're spending money on alcohol, not even providing food, and then other times when they're not drunk, they're a wonderful parent, they're very um, caring, giving. So this inconsistency, right, might cause a child to then not have a sense of trust. They have a basic mistrust in, in people in their world. But let's say they, they move on with a sense of trust and well-being. They go to the next stage, which is where they're asking themselves, you know, what, what can I do by myself? They are developing an autonomy. Their body's separate from their parents. And they want praise when they act on their own in autonomy, when they do things independently. Parents should, um, in this case, physicians should be encouraging parents to offer positive reinforcement when um, their toddlers try new things and not to become overwhelmed by irrational fears so that children can develop a sense of um, autonomy rather than feel ashamed of their body or doubt themselves. So if that conflict is successfully resolved, then children develop a healthy sense of will. When they move on to the, um, early childhood, ages three to six, then they, they try to see, well, what can I do in the world? What, what, is it okay what I'm doing? Am I, am I doing things well? Um, and if parents are not encouraging them, they might feel a sense of guilt, right? So they're learning to initiate and carry out their own plans. If parents are reprimanding them or not telling them, oh, you did a great job, oh, that's a nice drawing, oh, what a nice story, oh, you wrote your letters, these types of things then children might feel a sense of, of guilt or not being good enough. From late childhood, then it becomes really about competence. They start comparing themselves to the peers. The feedback from the parents still really matters, but also from their peers. They want to know, am I as good as those around me? You know, am I, am I capable? What am I going to do with this body, with this mind? Am I as smart as my peers? Am I as strong as I'm athletic? So they start to think, Am I competent? And they start to, if, they, if they're not getting feedback from the world that they are, they might develop a low self-esteem or a sense of inferiority. So if children successfully make it through this stage of maturation, they have a sense of competency in their body and their minds. And then the teenage years, where it's this identity versus role confusion. And um, you know they, they, they're trying on different roles. Am I the jock? Am I the princess? Am I the geek? Am I the weirdo? I think I'm thinking breakfast club here with all these scenarios, but that was probably not your generation. That was how we, we, you know, breakfast club was kind of the model of that role confusion when they had such ideas of who they were and they get together on detention Saturday morning and those roles kind of dissolve as they get to know each other more and they see they're more than just the roles they put to their, to their high school. Anyway, so a physician can help resolve this by encouraging um, teenagers, because again, at this point, physicians have an independent relationship with, with teenagers, to, um, to be okay with different roles, to, to be okay with having different aspects of themselves, to, I guess, appreciate them for just who they are, right? When they're asking themselves, who am I? It's good for the physician just to kind of listen and encourage. And then in the 20s and 40s, the conflict becomes intimacy versus isolation. So people are asking, can I love? 
Can I find a partner? Can I have a relationship? Can I build a family? And the most important part of this in this stage is, is developing a sense of closeness and intimacy and companionship, um, whether that's with an opposite sex or the same sex, whether it's friends or romantic partners, that the key to, in terms of Erickson's model for healthy resolution of this stage is a sense of love and partnership and intimacy. And then the 40s and 60s is this period of generativity versus, or the conflict is between generativity and stagnation. So people are asking themselves, what is my purpose? What have I done in the world? Have I offered anything of meaning or anything of worth? They start looking at their lives and wondering, are there my relationships been high quality? They, they want to say, what can, I, what can I leave as my legacy? Um, you start to see uh, some, some ambition in the workplace to want to leave something behind, to want to rise so that you know, people can, can feel a sense of leadership and accomplishment in their vocation, or if in their family, they get their kids into a really good college because that's a measure of worth for them. So they're just asking themselves, you know, basically, what, what am I giving to the world? Is it worthy, or am I stagnant? Am I not moving forward? And healthy resolution of this conflict can then lead to the final stage, which is 65 and above, where people are then looking at their life and thinking, you know, essentially, what, what have I, how have I done? How, how have I done in life? Um, did I leave a life of integrity? Did um, I offer, you know, good things to the people in my world? Did I create new things? Did I live a good life? Am I a good person? Or, or do I have a sense of, I didn't do enough, um, my life really didn't have much of a point. And then that leads to a sense of despair. So in successful resolution of each of these stages, um, the person emerges as someone who has integrity. They look at the narrative of their life and they feel good about it. For the physician, if someone hasn't reached that stage, then it's up to them to help them create a narrative that can give them a sense of peace in their lives, especially um, if they're nearing the, the end of life and it becomes then um, a special type of physician that can give them, um, change, help them change their narrative and have a sense of peace and calmness um, as they come closer to death. Okay, so with that, we'll take a break and come back for adulthood in the next lecture. Okay. Um, one, it's probably a good idea if we memorize the...